Let me just adjust this. Well, it's great to be with you and uh, on this historic occasion, the first of many, no doubt, the first in 25 years of you gathering together like this as leaders and um, thrilled to be here. And you, you've traveled from all over this island. Some of you have, may have come further and you're in for a treat really. Jen, Danielle, Stevenson, the uh, among those speaking this week, you really are in for a wonderful, wonderful time. We're talking about legacy this week, celebrating some of the things which are, have been handed down to us from the previous generation, things which are really precious to us in the vineyard. And we're celebrating that. And as we do so, we bear in mind that we are one among many within the body of Christ, right? God loves the whole church. And we need all kinds of church churches for all kinds of people. So we have the Catholics and the Methodists and the Eastern Orthodox and the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Pentecostals and on and on. And we are, as Wimby used to say, one vegetable in the stew. We're not the best, we're just in there. The stew wouldn't taste as good as it does without the vineyard as without every other denomination but it is a vegetable and it's worth describing because we love the taste of that vegetable. Most of us are in the vineyard because it's like, this is how I love to do church, how I love to express my faith and do relationship and uh, live out you know, in community what I believe. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about that today. And you've got a little handout here, uh, which we, th we think may be helpful to you. Basically to ask and answer the question, so what is the vineyard? If you were sitting in a restaurant with someone and they said, look, I know you're a Christian and all, I know about the church loosely, but tell me, what is the vineyard? This is really helpful. This tool was originally scribbled in a restaurant, as I understand it. John Wimber was sitting with Carl Tuttle, and they were just preparing a lot of teaching. Things like, what is the vineyard? What, what is so important to us? And on a napkin drew a picture of a person. Now, it's been reproduced. I'm not sure who the artist was, and my apologies to... You know, I mean, it looks like that guy's, uh, or woman's, it's a vineyard person. Like their arms are coming out of the side of their neck or something, doesn't it? It's really weird. So anyway, what we've done there is set the bar really low so that when you're in a restaurant with a friend who says, so tell me what's, what is it you're in? You'll be able to draw it better than that and uh, fill in the words as we go. So originally scribbled 25 years ago, I was just reflecting that probably in the same year as the first church was planted, the first vineyard here, on this island with Sean and Debbie Byrne. 25 years, I understand, I think, pretty much accurately. That's how long they've been going. Sean and Debbie, you're both here this morning, apparently not on the same row, but just sitting one behind the other, I see. <laughs> Would you just stand? We'd like to honor you. Faithful servants who broke the ground here, the beachhead established 25 years ago, the vineyard in Dublin, and have faithfully served ever since and been a part of this family as they've watched it grow over these years. So we're going to begin with filling in the words. They'll come up on the screens, but beginning at the bottom, we're just going to work vertically up this person, okay? So first of all, we stand on a foundation. That foundation is the Bible. Okay, the word of God. We are people of the book. God has given us the, the 66 books of the scriptures and basically a bit like a, an owner's manual. I've got a Ducati. 
I got it, I was given a red book, 200 and something pages, I read the whole thing. Like, how, how does this work? How are you supposed to like, look after it? How are you gonna get the best out of it? How is it gonna work for the long haul, the way it's designed to work? Well, what, what better than to read the owner's manual? It was written by the factory in Italy, written for specifically this model. This is how to live. And the Bible really is the owner's manual for us, for humanity. He understands. If you want to know about human flourishing, let's look at his design. He designed everything. And so we don't have to rely on our own ideas about, well, how do we negotiate? What, what do we do here? And culture is changing so fast and I just don't know what to think. Well, what do the scriptures say? It's what the Apostle Paul said a couple of times. Well, what do the scriptures say? Let's have a look. We're trying to work out our identity. Are we male or female? For instance, well, it says in the book that God created them, male and female. Let's look to his perfect design and work it out from there. Identity is received, not achieved. We don't need to choose who we are. We are God's children, perfectly loved, perfectly accepted. And we know who we are because of whose we are. So the Bible is a very precious book. We had a testimony on Sunday night from someone Actually, because this is being recorded, I won't give you all the details, but someone who from a Muslim country has just come over, having been led to Christ in that country, which maintains it is a 100% Muslim country, he would have been instantly killed if anyone discovered he came to faith. He didn't have, I don't think, a Bible. And there are people all over the world who don't have that. And when they get hold of four pages, they read them, learn them, and, and share them around. And we have these Bibles, I don't know whether you know where your Bible is, and, and it's partly because, of course, we now have them on our smartphones if we own one of those or our tablet. The great thing about that, although I do miss the days of my leather-bound Bible being with me in church or daily or whatever, actually we have it with us, which means that in your lunch break or on the train or sitting by a lake or wherever you happen to be, you have the Word of God, the precious Word of God there. I really would encourage you to read it. I really would. And this generation is becoming a biblically illiterate generation. We're good at watching YouTube videos and things, but we're not so good at reading. And you can, you know, I've got an app on my phone. It's called the Bible app. It's a little brown book. And if I am too lazy to read, I can just press and it reads it to me in a beautiful voice. David Suchard, I think, and, and others like that. So read it because it is incredibly precious. And... Um, it's so important to understand. If you've never read the Bible, some of you have never read the Bible from beginning to end. It is an incredible book to read. Got some hard bits and some slightly boring bits. But it's a phenomenal. It's the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. If we step off the foundation, this vineyard person, for whatever reason, steps off the foundation, what will happen? It will fall over. The person will fall over. And the Word of God is being challenged today it is often at odds with what society is teaching us, but we must not capitulate to pressure from society to compromise on what the scriptures say. So that's the foundation. Now, as we look at the word of God in the vineyard, we have a perspective. We look through a lens, that lens being the kingdom of God, an understanding of the way history works and indeed the future works is God's kingdom, his rule and reign affecting, breaking in into uh, you know, life on earth here. And so we see through the scriptures and we see God's deliverance of the people of Israel. We see uh, 
um, Solomon, we see Shalom under that reign. We see in breaking pictures of the rule and the reign of God expressed in a broken world. And then we see Jesus arriving, the incarnate Son of God, and he comes with a message. His message was the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God has come near. And this is what it looks like in word pictures and parables. And this is what it looks like in practice. So when a sick person was before him, they found healing. When someone was oppressed by demons, they were delivered. When someone, you know, the people needed feeding, they were fed. Where there was, uh, you know, loneliness and people being outcast, he brought them back in. And he said, do this, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And pray it with expectancy because God's kingdom breaks into this present evil age. And we have an understanding of the kingdom in the vineyard, the now and the not yet, which is really helpful in understanding why is God's kingdom not fully here? Because like, you know, we're praying God's will would be done on this island of Ireland as it is in heaven, but it's not. Patently, clearly, it is not. Why is that? Well, it's because we live in a time between Jesus inaugurating the kingdom, breaking in in the person of Jesus, and the consummation of the kingdom at the second coming. We live in this, this time, and that uh, we experience a condition known as eschatological tension. Okay, that's what the theologians call it, eschatological tension. Guy goes to the... Uh, Doctors, comes back, his wife says, what did the doctor say? He says, I'm suffering from eschatological tension. Ooh, sounds uncomfortable, sounds kind of painful. Exactly, it is. We live in a time, it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? It's really painful sometimes. I've buried friends, as many of you will have experienced those sorts of things. Sometimes the kingdom of God breaks in, someone's healed, sometimes somebody is not healed. We can't figure out, well, what is this lack of faith? Is this somebody's sin? Is this... Well, it's a mystery, but it's a mystery we can settle and say, okay, the kingdom is not fully here. That wasn't God's will that that person was taken home early. That was the kingdom of darkness, that messed up world ruling in this situation. You know, God's will not being perfectly done. And we live in this time. It's very helpful because we can be real. We don't have to just be victorious all the time. We, we can be real that it doesn't always happen, but we can be expectant that at any moment, it can happen. It can break in the supernatural. The future age breaks now into the present. Boom. And we need to, we need to lean. You know, our, every day, our tendency is to settle and is to lean into the not yet. It's probably not going to happen. We live with sickness. We live with pain. You know, maybe we'll pray that kingdom come, that will be done, but without really any expectation. What we need to do is lean into the now the already, the inbreaking of the kingdom, lean there, lean out of the place, the status quo into, it could happen. It could happen this morning. Some of you who are suffering physical conditions, emotional conditions, you're spiritually not well, you could get healed before the coffee break. Let's lean into the expectation of the inbreaking of the kingdom. <laughs> Sometimes that happens to Debbie when the Holy Spirit touches her. Darling, why don't you tell us a little bit about the inbreaking of the kingdom in your life. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Do you know, when you said this that... This is not could, on. It, oh, it, it is. On, it is on. When John said, you know, expect it now, 
I, I really think we need to just pray right now. Okay. So I'm not going to tell any story. Say it again. I just want to. Say yeah. it again. So when John said we could expect it now before the coffee break, I think we need to. If you have a condition uh, right now that needs healing, we just want you to stand and we and let's lay hands on one another uh, and pray with expectation for healing in the room. So just quickly, if if those around you can turn around, just quickly ask them what is it they have, and then speak uh, a prayer of command for healing over their bodies. And then we're, gonna, we're just going to do this quickly. Holy Spirit, you are already here. We thank you. And now, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to fall upon us, to fall on these folk, to come with your healing presence. Increase it, Lord. Increase your presence. Now, if you have a way of testing the condition, of checking whether there's been a change, then, then do that. Um, once, you're, once those around you have prayed with command, just do move something that you couldn't move or test it out in some way. If you can't, that's fine. But let's say if you've got a stiff shoulder, just see if you move. And if any of you feel a release... Uh, if it's a partial release, then just pray again. And if it's a full release, then give me a wave and we'll celebrate together. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. We welcome your presence, Lord. Freedom. We speak freedom in the room. We speak freedom from pain, freedom from locked up uh, joints, freedom in, from back pain. We speak uh, freedom from headaches, from tension headaches, tension in your shoulders, uh, conditions, stomach conditions, acid reflex conditions, uh, conditions where you, you actually feel discomfort in your stomach. We just speak freedom from those uh, symptoms as well as the condition itself. Okay, how, how are we doing? Anybody want to test out a condition? Anybody want to see whether anything's changed? There's a guy waving his arm there in the middle. Is anything happening with your... Any change at all? Give me a wave if there's a bit of change. Yeah, here? What's, what's changed? Swallowing. You're able, are you able to swallow now? Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Someone else. What, what, is, what was it that's, that, that's happened with you? Shoulder. And it was painful? Was it stiff? What's changed? You're able to lift it more than before? It's not stiff. And there's no pain. And there's no pain. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, oh, we'll have more times to pray for one another and, and, and hear stories in a bit. But I, I, I just want to tell you um, a bit about how uh, John and I came into the vineyard. So... I, I was brought up in South America in the mission field, and so we did actually see amazing things. I didn't understand why we saw them. I just thought this is part of uh, the way God works. And so we did see miracles and various things happen. But I came to the UK um, to boarding school and into an environment where it was very religious. We would go to chapel every morning, but nobody believed what we were singing or what was being preached. And uh, it, I, I was in a culture that was not 
it was practicing religion, but it was not actually believing in Jesus or anything. So it was a major culture shock for me, away from my parents, not able to process it. So by the time I was sort of 17, 18, I, was, I had so many questions. I, I believed, I knew whose I was. I knew that I belonged to God. I knew that I belonged to Jesus, but I didn't know how to live out the life. I hadn't experienced um, anything in, in, in the UK that made me think there was a purpose and a way to live uh, my, my beliefs. And so I kind of walked away um, from faith, really. And John and I were in the same boat. We were, we'd, we'd met through church, but by the time we were at university, we were not really following Jesus. We would occasionally go to church to keep our, our stamp punched to heaven, so our to speak. Tickets our tickets our tickets punched to heaven. Um, and then one day I called home. It was a phone box. Uh, not a mobile phone, and I called my father, who had by now come back to the UK to be a vicar um, of a church in Chorleywood called St. Andrews. And it was a happy, clappy church. Uh, they worshipped um, uh, with very joyful, simple little songs, um, but they were not necessarily directed at God. You know, if I were a butterfly. Anybody remember that one? Those sorts of things. And um, a fuzzy, wuzzy bear. A fuzzy, wuzzy bear. I clap my hands and I jump on the chair or whatever. I don't know, but it was. And um, anyway, so uh, it was a happy church and um, beginning to experience a little bit of, of what it meant to prophesy, things like that. But I, I wasn't really in the, I didn't know those things. So I call home and my father was beyond excited. And he begins to tell me about this visit that they'd had from the vineyard, a man called John Wimber. A man who was on his way to York because he'd met a, a famous evangelist called uh, David, David Watson. Watson. And, uh, but on his way, my father heard about him through very trusted friends who he'd known over the years at the mission field who had studied the vineyard and uh, had come to realize that the vineyard had something to offer the church because the vineyard was pressing in to the supernatural and they were seeing expressions of the kingdom. But they didn't understand this language of the kingdom uh, as in people who were watching the vineyard. But they, so they invited John to come to the UK. So my father persuaded John Wimber to stop off at his church, which was 20 minutes from Heathrow Airport. What he didn't expect was for John to turn up, um, middle-aged, similar age to my father, um, but he turns up with a, a coach middle load. Middle-aged, darling, like 20 like years younger 20 than years us. younger than us. Yes, but in those days, it felt very old. And uh, it, it did seem old, didn't it? Anyway, but a coach load of young people. And of course, my father's like, oh, we, we can't pay for all these young people. I mean, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, he's taken advantage of us. He's brought all these. And women said, no, 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 they've paid for themselves to come to the UK to bless the established church. I mean, that was the, that, the first thing I, I just thought, Oh my gosh, I understand young people sacrificing to go to Africa or South America to reach out to orphans. And that was quite novel even then. But to come to the UK to bless the established church uh, was mind-boggling to me. So he describes how these, this coach load of young people arrive in the church. John Wimber starts talking to the church about, says, God wants his church back. He wants the minister, pointing to my father, to stop doing everything and let the people minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about some of the things that they'll see. And he talks from the scriptures about the kingdom breaking in. And, and then he says, now to confirm that this is what the Lord is saying to the church today, he invites the Holy Spirit. And he just says, come Holy Spirit. That's all he said. It was so unhyped. It was, nobody knew what to expect, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit crashes into the room. People are jumping out of their pews. I mean, all sorts of things are happening. And it, instantly people start to get healed. Now, 
these young people that he brought with him start to just, they're climbing over the pews, they're laying hands on people, young guys laying hands on women's chests. I mean, everything's inappropriate and wrong because, you know, they hadn't yet, you know, learned a few boundaries and how to, you know, talk about how we're going to do this because they were just doing it. But they were, these kids were hungry and they were like, they knew what they were here to do. And they were clambering all over people, praying for them. Arthritic hands were opened, a blind eye was opened. And Mary Widdersdale, who I had known and John had known from being part of my parents' church for a while and my visits from boarding school and holidays, she had been in a wheelchair I'd never known her not in a wheelchair, neither had you. So over 10, over 10 years in a wheelchair with multiple sclerosis, Mary Widdersdale gets up out of her chair. You can imagine, this is a village church. Everybody knows everybody. The whole place erupts. It's cheers, claps. She gets up. She puts her husband in the wheelchair. She wheels him around. <laughs> Everybody's clapping. It was chaos. And as a result, a whole bunch of young people who were playing outside the church come in to see what's going on. Okay, do you see, this is such a picture of the kingdom. It's not just for those inside, it's for those outside. Everybody gets to play and participate. We are all priests. That's the priesthood of all believers. We've all uh, been equipped. We're being equipped constantly. We're learning how to do this stuff. Anyway, these kids come in the back. They're watching. And one of the young Americans says, do you want some? And he, he joins their hands together, and it's like electricity goes through them. And then a number of them gave their lives to Jesus that night. One of them is my brother-in-law. He, after that, started dating my sister. He's, they're sound Christians. All their kids are, uh, love the Lord. So profound conversions because of the power of the Holy Spirit present in that environment. So I heard it on the phone, and... My father had no idea the, the, the way, the life we were living. We were not going to church only once in a while. We were sleeping together. All, we didn't have Christian friends. All our friends were in the art world. So way back before we even talked to her about postmodern, postmodern things, uh, my friends were very postmodern. They were deconstructing everything. So my friends were experimenting with their sexuality. They were like, don't define me. Don't tell me sex is sex. I'll have sex with whoever I want. I'll fall in love with whoever I want. It doesn't matter whether it's male or female. So they were talking this sort of thing long before culture was embracing it because it was the arts, it was the art world. So I was really around that. So was John. In fact, some of my friends who were gay when I was at school, at university, are now married heterosexually with children, and some of John's friends who were sleeping with all the girls living, and now we meet up with them, uh, they're gay. So it's like people were just fluid back then, and now of course people talk about that but, and, and come to accept it, but back then it was quite novel. And so this one, these were my friends. I go back to the refectory, absolutely on fire. I'm like, this is what it's about. Lord, I want to come back to you. My life's a mess. I had an eating disorder. I was throwing up my food. I was so thin. I had no periods. And I go back to the refectory. I sit down with my friends who are none of them believers. And I'm just absolutely passionate. I'm saying, I know you don't know that I believe in Jesus, but I do. I grew up in, in church. Apparently, because I believe in Jesus, I could heal people. I'm so excited. And then one of the girls who was like the leader of our pack, who was, um, I, I think now she would be a transgender person, but we didn't know what it was called in those days, but she was very talented. I mean, she was not a victim. She was not, she wouldn't come across as weak, um, but she was uh, very, very talented. She said, Deb, she said, Oh, and they were also into every kind of drug, experimenting with mushrooms, with powders, with all kinds of things, and smoking everything. And so then she said, Deb, she says, you want to be really careful. This sounds well dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, I, but she said, but if you think you can heal people, her partner had been taken up to the sun with what they thought was 
appendicitis. So I said, right, I'd never prayed for anybody. I'd never seen anybody. I just heard about this meeting. I go up to the, the sand and there's this girl. And I said to her, look, I know that I've never talked to you about Jesus. I know you probably don't know that I believe in Jesus, but I do. And apparently, because I believe in Jesus, if I lay hands on you, you might be healed. Can I try? So she go, yes. You know, she's in pain. Pray for her, lay hands on her. I think I thought I should have spoken in tongues, so I invented something. I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Fiat. You know? <laughs> so I lay hands on her, and instantly the pain left. Now... In all honesty, I don't know if she was healed or not, but as far as my friends were concerned, because she did she have it, didn't she? We don't know. But she was up and left. So as far as she was concerned, she was healed of an intense pain. And all my friends who weren't believers, it was amazing. The breakthroughs, they would come to me with toothache, headaches, and we had the most amazing conversations about Jesus. And we began to take them, I began to take them to church. But the church in those days were not ready for unbelievers to come in. So there was an expectation of behavior, a behavior that assumed belief. So people hanging around asking questions, people lighting up cigarettes in the middle of the service was obviously not acceptable. <laughs> and so, that, so, so I'm then beginning to think, where could people go to church where they could come in and begin to journey in faith? And you can imagine the seeds of, of church planting and leadership begin to kind of fall upon me. But as soon as I talked to John, you also came in. So do you, you want to tell them about what happened with you with... Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I, that's enough. But I say this... So I'm saying that to say that, that we tell these stories, not because we're trying to be... Um, what's the word when you become... Oh, nostalgic. nostalgic. You know, this isn't nostalgia. These are stories of, that, are, that remind us who we are. And so we have the scriptures, as John said, where we see in the book how the kingdom breaks in. And then we have our own stories that just brought us in uh, as the kingdom breaks out. And then we have ongoing stories like this morning. And, and we just have to keep telling those stories to remind ourselves of what we carry, who we are. And it really is great news. Anyway, I'll pass it on to you. <laughs> so we started together praying for everything that moved. Even while we were still sleeping together, we were seeing miracles. It was amazing, the grace of God before we repented and got engaged and all that sort of thing. Um, but really, the supernatural was what brought us back, signs and wonders. I, had, uh, I, was, I was working as a jeweler in 1984. Uh, no, actually, 19, was it? yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, we got married in 83. I was working as a jeweler in 84. I had a friend who taught me jewelry because he was the most fascinating man I'd ever met across the road from school. I skipped all my lessons to go and watch him make jewelry. This guy is 23 stone, ex-Hells Angel, narcotics addict, um, gunsmith and gun dealer, and all his friends were armed robbers. And he loved motorcycles and so did I. So I used to just watch and he would talk and talk and talk, fascinating guy. Anyway, to cut a long story short, there was a moment when I called him in 1984, he was dying. He had some serious conditions that basically meant he was told, you've got about two weeks and you're going to die. So I went to see him. He was the first person I ever prayed for on my own. So I prayed with others. But here I was with a guy who I loved. He loved me. I, we, we hugged. We cried together because he was going to die. And then I said, can I pray for you? And he said, yes. So I invited the Holy Spirit. The power of God landed on him in that bed in a way he was just, he was overwhelmed. He said, what was that? What is that? I said, that's, that's God's Holy Spirit touching you. He described it later as the greatest rush he'd ever experienced. 
He would put, inject heroin into the, is it jugular or the vein, which goes straight to the brain. He'd burn all his veins out, but he would, you know, he knew what a rush was. But he said, I've never felt a rush like that. That was a rush of peace, and I've never known peace. So he's like, boom. And he was in extreme pain in various ways. And so I said, in the name of Jesus, I command this pain to stop. And it stopped instantly. And he's like, whoa, what was that? And I said, well, that's, that's the power of God, you know. And, uh, and then I said, you want to know Jesus? And he opened his heart to Jesus, and I got to pray with him. Uh, he was discharged. Two weeks later, the doctor said, you were dying. You were not supposed to live. This is miraculous. So that was pretty encouraging for me. <laughs> as, as a starter, you know. But... Um, the sad thing was, and one of the things which I'll come on to in a moment as we talk about the vineyard, is here's a guy tattooed up, you know, 23 stone, exhales only. He lost eight stone in weight as he was dying, but nevertheless, he's a big guy, big personality. Where would we send him to church? I was living 80 miles away. Where, what are you going to do? Send him to the church we grew up in, which was an upper middle class village church. No one had ever seen someone with tattoos in that village, let alone actually in a church in that village. <laughs> And so he never got discipled. He never really got, and so drifted very quickly, really away from any sort of commitment to, to Jesus. Now, I lost touch with him for 30 years. I assumed he died long ago, but I felt prompted a couple of years ago to see if he was still alive, and I found him. And uh, we connected up, and we had dinner, and I've seen him a few times since. I spoke to him this week on the phone. Um, and he, his life now is probably at least as bad as it was then. He's not a narcotics addict anymore, uh, but he's involved with some people as unsavory as the ones he used to be. He's now, he's 10 years older than me. He's now sort of, well, anyway, let's not go into what he does. Um, but I, you know, I pray for him. He shakes, he's got pain in his back, he's got all sorts of things wrong with him. And I said, can I pray for you? And I prayed, sat on the couch and I prayed, for him, all my best joined up prayers about the Father's love for you and the, all these things. Uh, and then when I finished, he's like, that was amazing. That's what I felt in 1984 when you prayed for me before. He said, look, I've stopped shaking. Wait, actually, I'm shaking. He's even going to look at my hand. But he said, look, when you started, I was shaking. I'm still. I feel such peace. You've got healing powers. So I said, no, no, this is Jesus. Remember, this is Jesus. I believe in him. I, yeah, but um, anyway, it's, it's a, he's a friend. I'm sort of trying. I really wanted him to come to faith before he dies. And I hope to be there on that day and that to happen. That's my prayer. So anyway, the kingdom of God can break in at any moment. And we really want to encourage you with an expectation for that. We have two legs for this rather strange-looking person. The first one is worship. We are living for God. Worship is more than singing, as you know. We are looking to put God's will before ours and to, li to live a life of worship. We offer our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices, as acts of spiritual worship. And so we surrender to him. You know, he's God, we're not. You know, what does God have to say about this or that? You know, we look at the scriptures, we look at the foundation on which we stand. That's what he says. Oh, I don't like what he says. That's like really inconvenient. It's difficult and it doesn't sound very kind. But who's the wisest of the two? You know, us or him. Okay, in that case, we can trust that he's right. We'll do what he says. And then 
in the vineyard, of course, very much uh, singing, sung worship is very precious to us. The first time, that, a year after that first phone call in 1981, 1982, we were there at St. Andrew's Jordan with John But He was playing on here. And, you know, consider how he loves you. His arms of love enfold you like a sweet perfume. And then we're singing all these songs to Jesus and so on. And we were really just moved by that experience. We ended up in 1987 in Anaheim, John Wimber's church, where we interned for about eight months. And I used to wear a headset a bit like this and a thing on radio. There was the ushers, car parkers, security team, all chattering away, and this is going on. So always in my ears, stuff going on. But in worship, I would just stand there, tears rolling down my face, just incredible, the, the connection with God which I'd never really come across in singing songs about if I was a fuzzy wuzzy bear, I'd thank the Lord for my fuzzy wuzzy hair. Some of you are fortunately not old enough to have ever sung that song. Uh, sorry if you wrote it. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> a friend of ours came to church tonight. Hopefully she'll be with five other friends at the Alpha launch party, but she's, she's, she kind of believes in God, but she's totally, totally unchurched. And when she has been... She says, this is amazing. The, the, that time when you sing, it's like, it's really evident. These people love God, but it's more than that. It's like they're in love with God. So she's coming in and observing something, a dynamic of intimacy and connection with the Father. So, you know, looking at the vineyard, these, they, they, their lives are not about them. Their lives are about pleasing God, living a life of worship. The other leg on which this body stands is compassion. Compassion. Um, I'd grown up in a middle-class village, uh, never spoke to someone you'd consider to be uh, poor in any way at all, really, until I was 26, I guess, or around that region. Anyway, I ended up working with homeless young offenders. I worked for six months full-time with people who were homeless, and it completely changed my perspective when you hear people's stories and you realize, wow, but for the grace of God, I would be in that sort of situation. You've been, you know, you're in Borstal, you're arrested for committing a crime. Well, I'm not flipping surprised you committed that crime, but given the, the place that you were at, which was so, you know, crushed in terms of your parenting or whatever. Anyway, long story short to say that when we had the opportunity to go to Anaheim, to the vineyard for this period of months, I said, you know, I, I love everything about the vineyard. I love the worship. I love the way they're so relevant in their teaching. Their, their whole style is not religious. The only thing I'd have against the vineyard is that they don't care for the poor. Because uh, I'd only ever seen Californians with like diamond rings and long nails and stuff. And uh, I just assumed, made an assumption, there probably were no poor people in California anyway. Um, and I just thought if, if only they would care for the poor, that would be like, for me, what a church really should be. And we got out to Anaheim, discovered they've got this huge warehouse, they've got clothing and food, they've got ministries in prisons, they've got orphanages in Mexico, they've got loads of people in the church involved in caring for the poor. Compassion is an, a, a major part of what any vineyard is and expressed much more than just simply care for the poor. But, you know, compassion is more than being nice. It's more than being kind. It's more than having sympathy for people in need. It's being moved to action to relieve that suffering. And so if you go to a vineyard, you would hope if you're having a hard time, you're going to receive comfort. If you're not well, someone's probably going to visit you. They're probably going to pray for you. 
if you need someone to listen to you, someone's actually going to do that. It's going to care. And if you need to be provided for, you need food or clothing or maybe even furniture in some churches, they're probably going to give you stuff for free. They'll provide for you. If you need, if you're suffering injustice, someone's probably going to speak up for you when you can't speak up for yourself. He's going to intervene in your situation and on and on. I've heard there's a place like that you can go where they're compassionate. It's not natural. It's not, na it's not like they're just nice. It's not natural. This is like they have a passion for compassion. And we see so many lives being changed in that. I think of somebody, she, when she came to us, she, was, uh, she still is a single woman, but she'd had a number of babies, all went straight into care. She had a condition where she needed somehow to, the attention of being ill, and she ended up in a wheelchair through just this condition uh, that wasn't a real condition. And uh, she came in through our Compassion Ministries, and she just walked in and found she was loved. And she was cared for, nurtured. She came to faith. She came from that ministry into the church. She joined the church. She did a course called Inspiring Change, learned some life skills. Last month, she spoke. She told a story on video on our birthday. And uh, she just the journey that she'd come through of receiving compassion, being believed in, being built up. She said, I'm now leading a team, you know, from a broken life, restored, because people were compassionate. Now, in many ways, our culture is compassion-wired, looking out for the underdog. And in attempting to treat oppressed minorities with equality, the liberal agenda is now creating a climate where anything goes. Okay? It's no longer permissible to draw lines and boundaries for fear of causing offense. Compassion is a strong leg. But as we look at this vineyard person, we don't stand, do we, on one leg. We stand on the foundation of the word of God, and the other leg, which balances and makes us firm, is worship. If we try to hop just on the compassion leg, we will lean. We will lean and not be balanced. Worship submits us to God's agenda, and we have a balanced, firm footing on the scriptures. And then we find the body, which we can describe in four little words or phrases. First of all, we are a family. And um, family is not a very good word in today's society for many people. They've come up through broken and dysfunctional families. But we believe it's a, a, a word worth redeeming. It's a biblical word, and uh, it's very important, this whole dynamic. Even the size of our church now, people say they use that word all the time. It's like a family. It's an extended family. I feel welcomed in. And it's not a case of you've got to believe certain things and then behave certain ways, and then you're allowed to belong. It's like, welcome, come and belong, come and be part of the family. And our prayer would be that you would understand, that you would believe, that your life would change, your behaviors would change towards being conformed to the likeness of Christ. But the first open door is come and belong. Someone walking in might say, this is, this is amazing. There's all sorts of people here. It's not like a club. When I go to the golf club, people generally are of similar socioeconomic you know, strata and they share common interests and all that sort of thing. But here, everybody is welcome. They talk about God being their father. They talk about, therefore, their, their brothers and sisters. And they behave that way, like, like family. And there's young people and old people and rich people and poor people. And all the skin colors are here. There's this guy or this woman. She's a judge. 
sitting next to a criminal who's just come out of prison. Where would you ever find this? This is amazing. And they seem to be friends. They're actually caring for one another. And like family, when it works well, they really know you and they stick by you. You know, family, very, very important bond. And in the church, likewise. You could also describe a vineyard as a hospital. Someone walks in and realizes very quickly, you don't have to have it all together. It's okay, you're welcome here, even if you're broken. You know, it's a place where imperfect people can feel perfectly welcome. We're all walking wounded, but with God's grace and the support of others, we're all on a journey of growing. And so someone walks in who's feeling broken, messed up, and they realize, you know, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Everyone here is really quite open about it. They're not like all victorious and super duper, got it all together, Christians. They're mixed up. And people here get fixed up. I think of a, a woman who recently came. She was having regular panic attacks. And she said, I don't do well in crowds. And so she was invited and she didn't want to come because she was afraid because it was going to be a big crowd. And she knew, I'll have a panic attack. And anyway, she walked in and all she felt was peace. The atmosphere. She just walked in. She was completely shocked. Hundreds of people. Peace. And every time she's been since, that's been her experience. So as you come into a vineyard, one would hope that there's care, people are going to listen to you, people will believe in you. At the end of every service, people offer to pray for you. If you want to, you can go up every week for your, you know, just for your needs to be met. Please pray for me. I'm just going through something difficult. And then I can go to a small group midweek, and guess what they'll offer to do in a small group? They'll offer to pray for me and journey with me. And so in all sorts of places, we pray for people and we care for people who are needing to be fixed up. We're also a training center. And so join a vineyard, hopefully you're going to get equipped in all sorts of ways, equipped to live life. Every sermon is not just a lecture on an ancient text. It's actually a practical training, equipping talk so that you can live the way God has designed us to live. At the end of every sermon, I encourage people who listen to me to be able to say the phrase, so what? Not in a cynical or a negative way, but like, so what? Am I going to believe differently to when I started? What am I going to do differently to before I heard this talk? It needs a practical application, and that's so much the way we tend to teach in the Vineyard Movement. Teaching and practical stuff in all sorts of other areas, on family, marriages, finance, relationships, hearing from God, how to pray for people. Our serving opportunities, which are many, there's on-the-job training. People learning all sorts of skills. In leadership training, not just teaching stuff about leadership, but we grow leaders. We're developing and spotting people. What's your gifting? Let's see if we can release you into that in greater measure. And there are so many people who, in vineyards, in their workplace, are getting promoted because they just manage people well. They, they seem to understand how to lead. And they say, well, I learned that stuff at church. You could describe us also as an army. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We live in a spiritual battle. And this training and equipping, sorry, uh, we're not fighting people. Right? We're not an army that's against others. We're fighting on, on the side of the kingdom of God against 
the kingdom of darkness. And through expressing God's nature, we're fighting the malevolent forces that are at work in our society. Don't be fooled to think it's just simply secular liberalism that we're up against. There is demonic force that's trying to shape society to be anti-God and to crush Christianity uh, if at all possible. It is impossible. But God's will is not being done. It's being opposed. And we give our lives to seeing God's will being done in our towns, in our cities, in Ireland, on this island, as it is in heaven. So in a vineyard, you're not, we're not an audience who are filling pews and biding our time waiting to go to heaven. No, we're here to make a difference. Your town, your city should be different because your church is there, as with every other church. We're active. We're doing things to express God's nature. We have opportunities to serve and to give and to confront injustice and care for people. Together, we are on a mission. And like in an army, when you're in a trench next to someone, there's a bond serving together in a great cause, comradeship. And that's commonly experienced among us here in the church. This strange-looking person has two arms and, uh, first of all, reaching out to other churches. Um, vineyards, we would hope, would have great relationships with other churches. And somebody looking in might say, this is, this is really Wow, this is amazing, because normally in, in any line of business, people in that same line of business are, by definition, your competitors, and therefore extrapolated your enemies, okay? And you guys are in the same line of business, even in the same town and city, like you're sort of competitors, but you, you're on the same side. It's mind-boggling to think about that. You're on the same side. In fact, you help each other. If you've got something which is a resource to another church, you'll give it to them. If you've got money and they need to, you know, buy a building, You're, tens of thousands of pounds is, are moving between churches to help the one that needs it. You're hosting things and, and putting on events which really equip and, you know, build up the body of Christ widely. You're in relationships. You're, you're meeting together. We just had, uh, for the second time, a meeting in our church with over 100 churches and Christian organizations represented, present. And during that, we broke up into groups and we prayed for one another. That, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. But it comes from Wimber saying and confronting many other people, um, including Debbie's father, about love for the whole church. The whole church. Jesus loves his bride in all its shapes and sizes. And we're all a bit weird and a bit strange and a bit malformed and slightly dysfunctional. But Jesus doesn't mind. Where the church loves him, he loves the church. And it's, it really blesses him when his children get along with each other instead of fighting each other. As with any parent, we know that dynamic, don't we? The other arm is reaching out to other towns, other cities through church planting. And someone looking in might say, do you know, I've come to this vineyard, I've come to this church, I love it, this is amazing, I'm so blessed, this is extraordinary. And these people are not keeping it to themselves. They actually care about other places having the opportunity to experience what we're experiencing here. And they send out teams. They send out people. They send them often with resources to start new churches. This is really exciting as we look at this island to think, I've got a friend who lives in, you know, on the Antrim coast. I just heard that on Wednesday, a church began. Let me just find, it was uh, Andrew and Andrea. You know, first meeting on Wednesday, like 40 people. That um, Antrim Coast Vineyard has been established. And I hear there's another one rumored it's going to start somewhere else in Southern Ireland. And, and I'm just praying that for my friends in this town, another one could start. 
Some of you in this room who've never thought about planting a church will be. In the next few years, you're going to find yourself in another place, leading a church, establishing a community of faith, a bit like what I'm describing. And people who would not find another church will find you. Give your life to if that's what God calls you. Do not do it if God doesn't call you, because it's tough. But if he calls you, there is nothing more fulfilling you can possibly give your life to than leading God's people. And lastly, this person has a head. People in the vineyard view the church not as theirs. I mean, they say, it's my church, and as much as they really have ownership, they don't go to church, they're part of their church. But nevertheless, they follow Jesus. It's his church. He is the head of it, and we live for him. Ephesians 4.15 talks about speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Someone might say in hearing this, I hear there's a place in a town near me where this is, this is true, what's just been described, this vineyard person, this is true. And there's so much more that hasn't been mentioned. I hear there's a place, I'd love to go to a place like that. I'd love to get involved with those people and become a part of it.